Good morning, church. Good to see you guys. All right, let's, uh, let's open to James chapter 1. We're going to continue where we left off last Sunday and finish up this, this section on how to w- live wisely in trials. So we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18 this morning. And then we're going to get back to our regularly scheduled program of the Gospel of John. I said Gospel of James, the first service. So I'm just going to own that one. Uh, we're going to get back to the Gospel of John uh, next Sunday. But this morning, we're going to finish... Finish gleaning wisdom for how to live wisely in trials from James, the half-brother of Jesus, verses 13 through 18. So follow along with me as, as I read. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures." Last Sunday, I introduced this idea of mine of theological amnesia. Theological amnesia, I define it as a a partial or total memory loss of theological truths, often occurring in times of trial. I I believe this is a common experience, and and we actually see it in our passage. Last week, we read in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, and then James starts actually just telling them things that they already know to be true, but are prone to forget in times of trials. Trials are tough. If they weren't, they wouldn't be called trials. Often trials bring confusion, and in them, we can be prone to forget all the good things that we know to be true and, and, and hold on to and, and cling tightly to in, in, in times when things are going well. And so the main thing that, G, uh, that James uh, told us last Sunday, he's going to tell us again this Sunday, is to live wisely in trials. Believers must remember truths of Scripture. To live wisely in trials, believers must remember truths of Scripture. And then he, he gives us six things in particular that we need to remember in times of trials if we're going to live wisely through them. We went through four last week. We're going to finish up with the last two this morning. But as a review, last Sunday, James told us that in trials, we must remember, this is in your sermon notes as well, we must remember that God providentially uses trials to strengthen our faith, that God has the wisdom we're lacking, we must remember to celebrate our eternal position in Christ, and finally, in trials, we must remember that God's future reward to those who endure trials is a sure promise. All right, so two more. Let's get into it. James's fifth piece of wisdom, ooh, that's a tongue twister, is in verses 13 through 15. Let's, let's reread it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So 
James's wisdom here is that in trials, we must remember that God doesn't tempt us. We're responsible for our own sin. Sometimes, even though we're obeying the Lord and being sensitive to his direction and doing what we believe is, is right, everything goes wrong. And it's in these times when, when we also forget that God providentially works all things together for our good and, and his glory, where we can accuse God of doing us wrong. James knows two things. Trials bring temptation. It's not an if, but a when situation. And when we're tempted and choose to sin, we're prone to blame shift. We can quickly, we can quickly shift blame away from ourselves and to anything and anyone other than ourselves. The, the art of blame shifting started all the way back in, in Genesis Three, after Adam and Eve were tempted, they chose to disobey God by eating the fruit. But although they chose to sinfully disobey, God chose to graciously pursue them. And he pursued them and he, and he effectively asked them this question. What happened? Adam's response was, the woman you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, I, I, I ate. But, but really, you're to blame, God. You gave me this woman that gave me the fruit. Eve's answer was, the serpent deceived me and I ate. In other words, I, I ate. But, but really, it was the serpent to blame. Now, that, that's, that's bad. That's bad. But before we get up on our high horses and look down on Adam and Eve, let, let's, let's be honest. We're, we're pretty good at this whole blame-shifting thing ourselves, aren't we? You see, and when we point the finger elsewhere, we're not owning our sin. We're, we're attempting to put the onus elsewhere. And the reality is, the sad reality is, just like Adam, we can even blame God especially in long and hard trials. And so James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for or, or because this reason. God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. God is not evil. He is not out to get us. The, the truth is we can't blame anyone or anything else except for ourselves. James says it like this in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You see, what's, what's luring and enticing us away is not found outside of us, but inside of us. It's easy to think that all my problems are out there, but we can't blame anything outside of us, not our circumstances, and not other people. None of these things cause us to sin. James says we give into temptation and sin because we're lured and enticed by our own desires. Desires uh, in the New Testament is one of the many ways uh, that the New Testament talks about the heart. 
The, the Bible sees the heart as the, as the very center of who you are. It, it's your causal core. The, the heart is the reason why you do what you do, why you love what you love, think what you think, want what you want, hate what you hate. The Bible says that all comes out of the overflow of your heart. And here, desire refers to loving, craving, or wanting something more than you do God. You know, the, uh, the insidious nature of sin is that the problem is not normally in what you want, but in that you want it too much. But sometimes what we want is evil, but more often than not, what, what we desire are actually good things in and of themselves. Right, like our, our children to obey us, our, our spouse to love us, or, or, to, or to find a spouse, or to have success in work or in school. I mean, in and of themselves, those are good things. Those are good desires. The problem occurs when we turn that good thing into an idol, a God replacement. The problem is, is when that thing that is good in and of itself reaches our sinful hands and it claims superiority, it claims the throne of our hearts. Anything can be an idol when it becomes our all-consuming preoccupation. The desire for any good thing becomes an inordinate desire when we're no longer ruled by Godly desires, natural desires for good things are meant to exist subordinate to our desire to please and worship God. Our sinful desires can not only rule us, but they can ensnare us. James says we're lured and enticed by them. This is the language of a hunt. The, of luring and coaxing the prey into the open by means of an attractive bait and then striking and killing and dragging it off to be devoured. The, the, the twist here is, the twist, the twist here is, is that we're often completely unaware that it's our sinful hearts that lure and entice us away because what we so often crave and desire are good things in and of themselves. And what makes it even more difficult to discern in regards to our sinful cravings is that they often masquerade in terms like expectations, goals, felt needs, wishes, demands, longings, drives, and, and so forth. You see, friends, we're our own worst enemy that's just the beginning. James says in verse 15, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. One commentator helpfully says, the, met the metaphors of growth and reproduction remind us that James is not thinking just of the major crises or blatant temptations that assault us, but also of the countless little decisions we make on a daily basis over a lifetime that mold and shape us into the people we ultimately become. Guys, this is, a, this is a sharp warning. You see, the result of giving into sinful desires over a lifetime, unrepentant and unchanged, 
leads to spiritual death, separation from God forever. In chapter 4 of of this letter, in the first two verses, James illustrates what we've been talking about. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip there. If you don't, we're going to throw the, we're going to throw the verses up here in a little bit. But go ahead and flip there. Why you do, let, let me ask you, are, are we buying what James is selling? Do we actually believe this? Because I think oftentimes we, we, think, we think differently about temptation and sin. Right? We, we may say things like, my children make me so angry. Right, but, but if we believe that, what we're saying is that our children are responsible for our angry response. Or, or maybe we say things like, the meeting tomorrow is making me so anxious. But again, if we believe that, what we're saying is that the meeting is responsible for my, my anxiety. Or, or maybe we say, this traffic around here makes me nuts. But does traffic have some moral power that causes us to act contrary to the character of our hearts? Let me ask, <clears throat> have you ever been in an argument and got angry or, or frustrated with that other person? Of course you have. We all have. Now, can you remember this instance, maybe like the last instance that this happened, even if it was sort of mild? Why did the conflict happen? And why did you get angry? James has the answer. James has the answer for all of us. Chapter four, starting verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. James effectively tells us that cravings underlie conflict. That's, we could summarize these two verses by cravings underlie conflict. Conflict. See, our passions just get out of control. There's some inordinate desire that we want and we're not getting. Respect, being seen as right, you fill in the blank. And so we, we argue, we clash, and we war. We, we desire, we do not have, so we murder. Well, well, well James, I, I thought we were talking about arguments. All of a sudden, people are killing each other. It was like a bad episode of Murder, She Wrote. What's, what's going on here? James is leaning on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. James isn't talking about actual murder here. He's talking about getting angry with people in your heart. Cravings underlie conflict. We argue because we're not getting what we want. I mean, this person over here is unwilling to admit that I'm wrong, I'm right, and they're wrong, and I'm going to give them what's what. We kill them in our heart because they're not giving us what we want. This is just the sad and simple truth. We're like little kids. Start getting what they want, so we throw a temper tantrum. You see, in the conflict with your spouse or your friend or your family member or your, your coworker, they're not forcing you to sin, nor, nor are they putting fresh sin in your heart. You can't blame shift to them. 
The conflict with them is merely the occasion. It's sort of the, the squeeze that just reveals what's been inside of you. Some unmet desire that you're willing to kill another person over to get. I mean, the reality is, if there wasn't anger in your heart, if there wasn't some sort of inordinate craving, then, then all that would come out would be patience, kindness, and love. Cravings underlie conflict. Guys, our, our problems are not out here. They're right inside here. James is telling us our, our hearts are the problem. And, and sin is so insidious. In, insidious to the degree that in the midst of a trial, we're not just simply prone to forget the good things that we know to be true, like God is good, he's for us, but we can even choose to give in to temptation and blame God for tempting us and doing us wrong. And so James reminds us that in trials, we must remember that God doesn't tempt us. We're responsible for our own sin. We, we, we sin because there's sin in our hearts. And we're responsible for our own sin. Listen, we're not going to receive God's help and experience real heart change if we don't own our sin and see that our problem is first a heart problem. We gotta own our sin we can't blame shift to circumstances or to other people, and, 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 and we definitely can't say that the devil made me do it. All fingers point back to us. And listen, we need to be specific about our sin. And this isn't just merely that I got angry. No, this is, this is I got angry because I wanted something so bad that I loved, I loved it more than God, and I loved it more than you, and I was willing to murder you in my heart for it. We gotta be specific about this stuff. God wants to help us in specific ways. He wants to give us grace to change in specific ways. We need to be honest in the specific ways that we sin. Sometimes we gotta do an autopsy of the argument, you know, to kind of see what was going on inside here. I think simple questions can simply be, what was I, what was I craving? What did I want? What did I, what did I desire so bad that I responded in that way? Uh, we could also ask the question something like, well, if I was to have gotten this, then I wouldn't have responded that way. Again, we're not looking to blame shift the circumstances. It, it, this, is, this is not a thing where we are trying to put blame on this other person simply because they didn't give it to us and it, as if then we would have been much better. No, that we ask these type of questions because we want to reveal the idols in our heart. We want to know what we are craving and worshiping more than God and more than them to the degree that we are willing to sacrifice everything on the altar of that thing. We gotta own our sin, and we need to see that it's a heart problem. If we don't see it as first a heart problem, we're not gonna pursue change in the right way. You see, if the, if the problem is, is out there, then we're gonna simply look for either a new circumstance or we're gonna determine that it's that person who needs to change. Now, it's true that circumstances bring temptations into our lives, but, but, but God says in this passage that we succumb to temptation because of what's inside of us. You see, if we don't see this 
this type of sin, this sin as a heart issue, if we don't see our sin as a heart issue, we'll, we'll see our issues very superficially as more of a, a circumstantial or behavioral issue. But if see that the problem is in here as the Bible says it is, then we'll see that the, that the ones who need change is us. If our problem is a spiritual issue of the heart, then we'll, we'll resist things like behavior modification and we'll, we'll pursue change through repentance. We're called to resist temptation and to put to death the sinful desires of our hearts. And one of the primary ways that we, we do that, guys, is through repentance. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're, we're called to live a life of ongoing repentance, to repent of sin and ungodly desires, to turn away from those things and, and turn to God in faith once again. And you see, as we do this, the Holy Spirit produces new fruit in us his fruit, his fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and, and the rest. Finally, don't be surprised by temptation, especially in trials. This is not an if, but a when situation. Right? We're the fools if we get blindsided by temptation and, and how our hearts respond. We gotta be on guard. Let me, let, me, let me encourage you to do sort of a, an inventory of how you respond in trials. Maybe you need to ask other people good questions too. Lots of times others know us better than we know ourselves. And so it's, you know, hey, can you tell me how I respond where I am often tempted when, when things aren't going well? Look, we want to know ourselves better so we can actually appropriately fight against this. Right? We need others. We, we need others to know our propensities as well, because we want to be able to have people that come alongside us when things aren't going well and say, hey, hey Stuart, I, I know that you can be tempted in this way. How, how are you doing with that? Trials are tough, and sin is deceiving, and we can even be deceived to think that all our problems are out there and not squarely right within here in our hearts we can even accuse God of doing us wrong, and this is why James wisely reminds us that in trials, we must remember that God does not tempt us. We're responsible for our sin. All right, one more. James's sixth and last piece of wisdom is found in verses 16 through 18. Let's read it again. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James's wisdom is that in trials, we must remember that God only gives good gifts to his children. This is in direct contrast to the previous verses. And so if, if God doesn't give temptation, then, then what, does he, what does he give? Good gifts. The problem is we're our own worst enemy. So James warns us in verse 16 against self-deception. He, he basically says, don't deceive yourself. The word deceive gives the idea of wandering or going astray. Here it's about wandering away from the truth. 
You see, because of, because of remaining sin in our hearts, we're prone to wander or to drift away from the truth and from God. The old, the old hymn, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, is true. A lot of you remember this, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We, we, we wander as we allow our hearts and minds to, to give way to our false subjective feelings. It's the slow bleed of allowing our, our feelings to interpret our world around us. And as we do so, over the course of a trial, we become increasingly suspicious of God. We allow our nagging doubts of who he is what he's said he's done and what he says he will do to kind of blossom into full-grown distrust. We show our hearts when we say things like, God, why, why are you tempting me? Why, why are you doing me wrong here? I, I thought you loved me. I've said this before, the, the drift in the Christian life is, is, is never towards godliness and truth. The drift in the Christian life is always away from these things. Friends, we're prone to wander. We're, we're prone to deceive ourselves. And so we must constantly and intentionally guard and preserve the truth in our hearts and minds. As our eyes need to be wide open to the fact that we are very susceptible to deceiving ourselves in trials. So otherwise our, our hearts are going to wander away. This is why the old hymn says before and after the lines I read earlier, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Beloved, our, our hearts are the problems. We must take seriously that we're prone to wander and deceive ourselves. And in so doing, we must, as it were, bind our hearts to God and ask Him to protect us from us. And one of the ways that we do this is by speaking objective truths to ourselves and against our false subjective feelings. If you didn't hear last Sunday's sermon, I talked more about this, this idea of preaching, preaching the gospel to yourself, so I'd encourage you towards that. Guys, we gotta own that our feelings are a lie if they're not in line with the truth of Scripture. And in so doing, we, we realign ourselves with the, the true north of Scripture then. One of the truths that we must preach to ourselves and remind ourselves often of in trials is verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't give temptation. He gives good gifts. Every single one of them. In other words, in a trial, don't deceive yourself into thinking that God has given you something bad. God only ever gives good and perfect gifts to his children. And once again, we need to remember the truth in, 
in verses two through four, there is a divine and good purpose in our trials. God providentially brings about and uses our trials to strengthen our faith. Charles Spurgeon well said, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Friends, we can be assured that we will only ever receive good gifts from God because with God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, we can trust that God will only give us good gifts because God never changes. Guys, this is, this is sweet news for folks like you and me. Fickle folks who change often. I mean, at the moment of birth, change is underway. Life can be a whirlwind of both good and bad change. Let's take our feelings. I can wake up in the mornings and feel one way by lunch, a completely different by the afternoon, yet a completely different way, and by the evening, there's a whole brand new feeling for the day. But God never changes. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. God is always and forever faithful and good and loving and steadfast and gracious and holy and wise, trustworthy. He's an immovable rock. Amen. Amen. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, the sun may change positions in the sky, bring about shadows, but God never changes. Not his character, nor his purposes, nor his promises ever vary. God's character is always constant, reliable, and unchanging. God is absolutely perfect. And because he never changes, none of his perfections will ever change. They will never decrease. What an anchor of truth to hold us secure in life's storms. God never changes. Because God never changes, we can affirm that, come on, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. You see, born out of his unchanging nature, God always gives good gifts. He gives good gifts like wisdom. We, we learned about last week. He gives us gifts like wisdom so that we can walk wisely in trials, walk in ways that are pleasing to him. He, he has given his children the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us, to resist temptation and say no and kill sin. God is good and he gives good gifts. And the greatest gift that God has given his children is forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation in Christ Jesus. James says in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Every perfect gift comes from above, from God's fatherly hands and of his own choice. But there is none so wonderful as salvation. 
James says that God gave us new life through the word of truth. That's the gospel. This is the most amazing and good news of Jesus' sinless life, his substitutionary death on a cross for our sins and his glorious resurrection from the grave. God saved us by giving us new life in Christ. What a gift. Trials can, gosh, they can just turn us right upside down. It even causes us to forget the good things that we know to be true. They even forget that, that God only gives his children good gifts. That's why James tells us that in trials, we must remember that God only gives good gifts to his children. Friends, we, we gotta realize in trials, and, and gosh, some of this stuff, it can seem kind of silly like this side of a trial, but, but we gotta remember in trials that we are, we are prone to think that God has given us some, something bad. Really, maybe he's changed his mind about us. Gosh, maybe I, I've just blown it enough. Ah, he's just after me now. We, we can think and, and sort of be suspicious of these type of things in the midst of long and difficult trials. But friends, James would remind us, each and every one of us, that God only ever gives good gifts. Family, we see this most clearly in that he has gifted us salvation. You see, we, we, are, we are assured that God will only ever give us good gifts because he has given us the greatest gift at Calvary. Because God never changes and he is totally good, we can trust that he'll only ever give good gifts to his children. In trials, we must remember that God only gives good gifts to his children. Man, trials are tough. They're tough. And we're, we're just prone. We are susceptible to just forget all the good things that we know to be true can just like go right out the window when trials and suffering come. Our, our, our feelings can often lead us and dominate us. In God's kindness, James has been reminding us of these, these very specific things that we can, we can tend to forget in the midst of a trial. These are the, the truths that we need to, to preach to ourselves and preach against our false subjective feelings. I think I can speak for all of us here. We, 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 we want to honor God to make much of him and walk wisely in our trials. And so James has been telling us to live wisely in trials. Believers must remember truths of scripture. Let me, let me end the same way I did last week. It's not what you're supposed to do, you know, kind of end sermons the same way, but talking about the same thing here. So let me, let me end it like this. Guys, our, our hope, our hope to obey this, to put it into action, to apply this, and to, to walk wisely in our trials is not found in us. Guys, it's, it's found in our union to the wise one, to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who ever walked perfectly wisely, always remembering the, the good things 
that he knew to be true. And friends, we're united to that one. And it is that one that we're in union with that wants to give us help and to empower us to walk in ways wisely, in ways that are pleasing to the Lord. Guys, we don't pick up our bootstraps. We, we lean into our union with Christ and to the, the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And in the wisdom and kindness of God, he's given us each other to do this together. We're not meant to do this on our own. So friends, in the strength of the Holy Spirit and with the help of each other, let's live wisely in trials as we remember truths of Scripture together. Let's pray. You are so kind to your children that this, that this text is here to, to let us know about our, our sort of faultiness, our, our being prone to forget things, but, but that you would put this passage here to help us to, to know this and to then remind us of these truths. You are so kind. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are for us, and we give you thanks. Holy Spirit, help us. We desperately need your strength to, to live in the good of this, to apply this to our lives, um, and to help apply it to others who, who are walking through trials and want to seek to, to do so wisely. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.